Many years ago, uh, several of you know, I had the privilege of taking my first trip to the Holy Land. My group, uh, which included some friendly faces here in this church, followed a very passionate uh, Bible teacher. This man was animated. What we did was follow this rabbi around the countrysides of Israel and Turkey. We would hike for miles and miles. We went to a bunch of different significant, amazing spots in these places, and we learned biblical stories in the places that were told that they happened. And we visited the place that we think this parable was told. In fact, this spot that this parable was likely told is a spot where a lot of the stories of Jesus that we know uh, would have happened. In this spot is probably uh, the location of the feeding of the 5,000. And it is here in this spot that several of the fishing stories in the Gospels that we read would have happened. And this spot is also likely the spot where Jesus preached from uh, repeatedly. Some of the material that we know now as the Sermon on the Mount was probably preached first on this hillside. But when we visited that spot, we did not talk about this parable, as you thought, would think, would make sense. Rather, good rabbis teach with experience. They want you to know what you're going to know because you experience it. And so one day, well beyond this spot, our group was on a tour bus and we were heading back to the place that we were staying in a kibbutz on the shore of the Galilee uh, from the region of Nazareth where we had just finished a very, very long hike. And as we're going back, thinking about dinner and rest, our rabbi all of a sudden stands up and just shouts at the bus driver, stop the bus! Before the bus even stops, the rabbi is out the door and almost running down this ancient path. The rest of us that are on the bus, this pilgrimage of ragtag Texans pretty much, just try to get off the bus and follow him. He is racing. As we go, we realize uh, a little belatedly that we're walking an actual ancient path, that we're walking by these long, straight piles of rocks, and we're heading towards these other long, straight piles of rocks. And after about a whole mile, after a long day of already hiking, we hike uh, hop over one of these long, straight piles of rocks, and we find ourselves in the middle of nowhere. We had no idea where we were. In fact, this was just a field. It was a field with no name. It was just rocky and hot and dry, and we were tired. And the rabbi, our teacher, took out his Bible. And he opened it to this chapter, to Matthew 13, and he started to read this parable, the parable of the sower. And as this rabbi read, as I listened to the words that he was speaking, I looked around me and I realized that I could see everything that he was talking about. Those long, straight piles of rocks were ancient fences with hard, compacted paths just next to them that have been walked on for millennia. And as the rocks weren't just limited to the fences, they surrounded us. There were small pebbles, but some of these rocks were bigger than our heads. And over the top of every rock was some sort of thorn. So much so that as we walked in, those of us that weren't wearing long pants had blood coming down our shins. I mean, it was brutal. Rabbis teach 
with experience. But this wasn't enough for our rabbi. As we found ourselves listening to this parable in that field, and as he finished it, he stopped and he looked at this group of disciples around him, this group of pilgrims that followed him halfway across the world to end up in a field in the middle of nowhere. And then he reached down and he grabbed one of the biggest bushes of thorns that was in that field with his bare hands and he wrestled it out of the dry ground and then he tossed it on top of the hill, on top of the pile of rocks that we were next to. Underneath that thorn bush was a big rock. And so he picked up that rock And he threw it onto the fence. And then he kept doing it. He picked up more thorns. He picked out more of these gnarly plants. He picked up rocks and he just kept going. Now you and I, we are not used to this kind of education. When we want to know something, we know that we can go find an expert, right? We can read a book. We can hear somebody give a lecture. We can hear somebody maybe even give a sermon. That's not the kind of education that you get on these trips. This is not the kind of rabbinical education that would have been happening in the day and the time of Jesus. As we've talked about before, if you are a disciple of the rabbi, you don't just need to know what the rabbi knows. You don't just need to think what the rabbi thinks. You need to be like the rabbi. You need to do what the rabbi is doing. And so on that afternoon, near 100 degree heat, we'd already finished a 12 or 13 mile hike. We just walked another mile. Our shins are bleeding and our rabbi is picking up stones, picking up thorny bushes and the rest of us just watched him. It took a long time for us to realize what we should have been doing. In fact, the rabbi finally looked up and he was about a foot from me. And he looked me right in the eye and he says, what are you waiting for? And so I realized what a dunce I was being and I started to pick up rocks. I started to pick up those thorny plants and I felt every moment of it in my hands and the muscles in my hands and the muscles in my back. In that field, I learned this parable. I experienced this parable. I learned what should have been obvious. I learned that I'm not the sower. God is the sower of seed. And that the seed itself can be understood in a few different ways and that all of them are good. That the seed is love and grace. That the seed that this God sows into the world is a creative and generative word. That this seed is the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And that this seed is sown everywhere. I'm not the sower and I am not the seed. But in this parable, I am somehow simultaneously situated in two different places. First, I am the soil. But it's not the whole truth. I am the soil and so are you. We are the soil and all of the created cosmos is the soil and this field that God is sowing. And there's something interesting to note about the way that this God actually sows the seed. If God was a subsistence farmer in first century Israel and he was sowing his seed as the way that it's described in this parable, his neighbors 
would think he was a pretty poor farmer. This farmer doesn't cultivate the field. He doesn't pick up the rocks. He doesn't pick out the thorns. This farmer doesn't even mind throwing seed on this pathway that's been compacted for years and years and years. This farmer sows seed without regard to the receptivity of the soil. The farmer just sows the seed. Good soil, poor soil, bad soil. This farmer just throws the seed. And the field receives it. In our hearts, we receive the seed. In our own rockiness, our own weariness, and our own distraction, even in the places of our sharp edges, we receive the seed. Even in the places that we actively trample down, seed is sown. Which leads to the second situation that I think we find ourselves in in this parable. We are the soil, but we're also the workers in the field. I think that this parable invites us to cultivate the soil. That we seek to remove rocks and we remove weeds and we remove thorns that don't allow seed to sprout and flourish. We're the field and we are the laborers. And there's more than figurative truth to this. In the second creation narratives in our Bibles, if you go all the way back to the beginning, Adam is fashioned from soil. Humanity is created from the very dust and soil of the earth. And this word Adam, as we've talked about, doesn't actually, it's not actually a name. It means humankind. And it means soil. This story tells us that humankind was fashioned from soil. God fashions Adam and then gives Adam a task. In Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to la'avda and la'shamra. Now, some translations interpret these final two words as to till it or to keep it. And others say that these words mean to cultivate and to protect. My favorite suggestion is from Dr. Ellen Davis, who teaches at Duke Divinity School. She says that these terms are priestly terms, that they describe priestly tasks. And so when we read this, we should read it as Adam is placed in the Garden of Eden to serve it and to preserve it. Adam is made to serve and preserve the soil. To serve and preserve the created place that God has given them. Humanity is the soil that's also called to serve and preserve the soil. This biblical narrative tells us that the health of humanity is intimately connected with the health of the earth. Humanity is given this task to serve and preserve. But we all know what happened next in the story. Instead of serving and preserving, humanity chose to take a resource that they were not given. Now Adam must wrestle the earth for its resources. Instead of living in a garden of abundance, Adam is cast out into exile. God even says that Adam must return to the earth. From soil you came into soil you will return. Humanity sinned. It was certainly a sin against God. We didn't listen. But it was also a sin against the created universe. It was a sin against the soil that we were given. 
We were called to till and to keep, to cultivate and to protect, but we chose a different path. And the result of this path is that the earth itself suffers. Paul even describes this in his letter to the Romans where he says, The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the choice of Adam. But it was subjected to frustration in the hope that creation itself will be set free from slavery and from decay and brought into glorious freedom. Scottish poet and mystic John Philip Newell tells a story of something that his mentor taught him. Newell says that matter matters. Matter matters. The earth matters. Soil matters. Because it is all God made, it is all God redeemed, and it will all be made, God, made new when God makes all things new. Matter matters. Matter matters because it's a question of how we handle our God, how we handle what it is that God has given us. Do we use what God has given us for our own gain, or do we use it in the way that God intended? Do we serve and preserve? Do we tend to it? Do we share it with generosity and regard for our neighbor and for every piece of matter that we encounter? I hope um, that you've heard or you've seen our invitation to the screening of the letter that we're doing on Friday evening here at the church. This movie is really, really good. Like our parable, this movie explores four figurative soils. It explores how our actions and the capacity of our soil are impacted by the things that we do. In 2015, Pope Francis challenged all of humanity, not just uh, the Catholic Church, but all of humanity, to consider the ways that our consumption impacts the world around us. And the movie follows a dialogue that the Pope had with four people, people that represent four kinds of soil. In this movie, we hear the voice of the poor, we hear the voice of the indigenous, and we hear the voice of the youth that will inherit the world. We hear the, the voice of wildlife and the environment. And in this movie, we hear how the changing earth has challenged each of their ways of life. But we also hear a call for hope. Because matter matters. And matter matters not just to us, but to the God that created all of this matter. Environmental concerns are not just concerns for scientists and politicians. They're concerns to the people of God because we were fashioned from the environment. And we were called to steward it. Gus Speth, who is a scientist and a lawyer who's advocated for different environmental uh, uh, actions over the years, said this. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good silence could, uh, science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy, and to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Friends, we are the ones 
that are in the business of spiritual transformation. Our very mission here in the UMC is to create disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Now, I am well aware that I have friends in this room that have vastly different opinions about climate change and the impact it has on our world and our role in it. But what I do hope that you hear from me is not an argument about that. What I hope that you hear from me is that matter matters and that you matter. That there is an invitation in this parable, that there is an invitation in our Bibles to steward and to care for that which we've been given. I hope you hear that you have been given the ability to make the world a better place for yourselves and for your children and for widows and orphans. We know that soil can change. We have seen places on this earth where fields have gone fallow, but we have also seen places where new life springs forth from that which was once barren. Our very story is a story of life that comes from death. Soil can change, and you can change. You can cultivate your heart, you can cultivate this community, and you can cultivate this environment so that the seeds that God sows bear fruit in abundance. I hope that as we go forth from this day, that you'll join me in that work. Of all of the amazing places that I went when I was in Israel and Turkey, this field with no name is one of the places that I will remember the best because I actually felt and knew what it was that I was learning on that day. I'm thankful for that experience. In the name of the God that creates life that springs forth life, and Jesus who cultivates our hearts and the spirit that ties us all together in a web of love and life, amen.